Hello everyone, it's Dr. Stillman and today we are here to talk about unlocking the secrets of female hormones, testing and management strategies. So for starters, I want to share with you two of the most important books that have shaped my thinking on this topic. One of them is Happy Healthy Hormones by my mentor, Dr. Rosensweet. Uh, Dr. Rosensweet is, like I said, my mentor. He's got decades of experience. He was just recognized by A4M for what an exceptional job and lifetime achievement in menopause medicine. The other book, which he recommended to me, is Avram Blooming's Estrogen Matters with Carol Tavares. Tavares. That book is about whether or not bioidentical hormones actually have an increased risk uh, for uh, breast cancer, among other issues, in women uh, who are using them. For women who are making a decision about hormone replacement therapy during or before menopause or after menopause, I think these books are required reading. It's such an important topic and such an important issue. It has so much to do with a woman's quality of life that I think not reading these things is a major, major mistake that I think many women, uh, if they knew what the potential of this therapy was, would really regret. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about why I believe that today. What we're also going to talk about today is big mistakes that I see people making in the testing of hormones and as well as the management. So without further ado, we are going to jump in to the papers. So this first study is the reliability of a dried urine test for comprehensive assessment of urine hormones and metabolites. A very similar study is the second one we're going to cover, which is basically the same thing. Why do I start with these two studies? When we're talking about testing hormones, we have a couple of different options for testing them. We can test them in saliva. No one uses that, or at least I don't think anyone is still using that. We can test them in urine and we can test them in serum. That's the serum of the blood for the record. If you, we don't use them in saliva because they vary too much and they're not reliable enough. Urinary testing, you can either put some urine on a little piece of paper and then send it to the lab. That's called the urine spot test. Or you can do what's called a 24 hour urinary hormone collection study. The 24 hour urinary hormone collection study, as the name implies, is a 24 hour period during which a woman will collect all of her urine and then send it off to the lab for testing. There are some people in the hormone testing world, I'm not going to name any names, who are advocating for the spot testing. You have some urine, drip it on a piece of paper. You may do this multiple times to get an idea of what 24 hour urinary hormone dynamics are, and then you send that off to the lab. These two papers are examples of, uh, of scientific papers, studies that would lead clinicians to believe that these are good types of tests for people to base their decisions about hormones on. I think that is a mistake. So first of all, why am I not talking about serum or blood? We know that blood testing for women's hormones, particularly for women who are taking hormones, is not reliable. This is a very simple matter of fact, which means that the gold standard for urinary hormone testing is a 24-hour urinary collection study. Why is this such an important distinction? Because when you're looking at hormones, you're talking about chemicals that can truly alter your fate in terms of risk for heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, and much more as we're going to talk about later. 
So getting it right is critical. A lot of people in the literature have published studies where they didn't use proper um, methods to monitor hormone levels and they drew the wrong conclusions. And that's where a lot of the controversy from or about bioidentical hormone replacement therapy has arisen. The use of these uh, paper-based uh, hormone uh, tests uh, with dried urine has become extremely popular. And I, I caution people against trusting these because while there are published reports that these tests are reliable, right? So look at the conclusion to this paper, which only, and I want to make a distinction here. So clinicians read papers very differently than research scientists because clinicians don't live in the literature a lot of the time. Okay. We spend our time at the bedside with patients. There are some papers that clinicians can read and understand pretty readily. And there are other papers that are so dense that clinicians will not understand them. The people who write for the clinicians win. They shape the narrative and they determine what actually happens in clinical practice. The other element to this is that there are academics out there who, if you convince them of your position, you can use them as what are called thought leaders in order to get doctors on a certain bandwagon. Big industries do this all the time. They'll pick a few experts. They'll fund those experts. They'll pay for those expert studies to get done. They'll, they'll put money into their labs. They'll give them speakerships and all kinds of things. They'll create the idea that this expert is the expert, and then they'll use that expert basically to drive their version of reality. That's part of why modern medicine is so broken and people are so unhappy with the care that they're getting. It's being driven by these hidden vested interests who are basically puppeteering uh, scientists and physicians to create the world they want. But anyway, so the burden of urine hormone collection can be reduced using collection of four spot dried urines on filter paper without compromising comparability with hormone results from a 24-hour urine collection. That's a tra translation. That means we can give up the 24-hour urine collection, which nobody wants to do, and we can just do this little thing with filter paper. This has created a massive industry for these tests because nobody wants to do a 24-hour urine collection when you hear that this filter paper thing is just as good. Okay. Now, if you only surveyed the literature and looked for papers like these two, which again, they basically say the same thing over again here, I won't belabor that point. You wouldn't know that there were problems with this. When you step behind the curtain and talk to certain experts who spend their time with patients actually assaying these things and testing these, these tests head to head in clinical practice, you'll find that those experts uh, will tell you that in clinical practice, this doesn't, this is not reality. So you have the version of reality in the literature based on a couple of papers, and you have the version of reality that the clinicians are reporting that is not getting reported in the literature. And this is why I think it's very important to put your care in the hands of clinicians who actually practice medicine, who actually see patients and who actually do a lot of lab testing. So I did a whole video on last Monday on my personal labs where I went into in great detail how much my labs vary from week to week, okay? And here is a great paper on how totally unreliable most measurements of women's hormones are. This paper has to be one of the most dense papers I've ever looked at. It is incomprehensible to the average clinician, and this explains perfectly why the average clinician 
is still relying on things like serum tests. Is there a time and a place for any test? Of course there is. But I got to tell you, having looked at a lot of serum hormone levels for women, they are not reliable. They are not that helpful. They are not that accurate. A lot of women will ask me, aren't you going to check my hormones? And I used to check hormones. I'll still check hormones if the patient feels strongly about it. But I also add the very strong caveat, which is the reliability and the meaning of these tests depends upon the timing of the test in the woman's menstrual cycle if she's having one. And it depends upon what fluid of the body that we're assaying. If women ask me, what test do you really want for uh, assessing a woman's hormone status? The answer is still 24-hour urinary hormone collection study. Why is this? So if you look at how hormones are handled over the course of a 24-hour day-night cycle, circadian rhythms matter here, more on this later. If you look at these cycles, the amount of, of hormone that's going to be present in the urine is going to depend significantly on when the urines are collected and if the woman has voided at certain points, which means that you can get significant variability. And yes, you can see examples in the literature where people say there's tremendous agreement. This is a great test. We can throw out the 24-hour urinary hormone collection study and bring in this new paper-based study. But again, those are two limited examples, and I don't believe them. I don't believe them, and here's why. This paper, like I said, is incredibly dense. I'm not going to go into too much data on it, but to make a very long story short, what they're saying here is that basically none of the analytes that you can look at, particularly in the blood, are going to have a reliability from one test to another. And you're going to have to, if you're going to get any kind of significant, uh, um, uh, draw significant conclusions from these numbers, you're going to have to do a lot of measurements. So if you want, you can go back, you can look at my Monday Masterclass, and you can see how much my testosterone level varied uh, just in a matter of weeks. It varied from the mid 400s up to the mid 600s over the course of a year. And I can tell you that during that time, my diet, my lifestyle, my exercise routine, everything about my life has been very consistent. And the things that have changed didn't have a significant impact on that number. So, and I can tell you this from many patients whose labs I've seen, who I, of course, I haven't shared with you because I can't share their labs because they're patients. Hormones are going to vary a ton with no real rhyme or reason. And this makes taking a history the most important thing we do. And it makes having a consistent diet and lifestyle an additionally essential important thing for us to do. Because if you already have a lot of variability in hormone labs because of the nature of the labs, and then you add to that a crazy diet and lifestyle and all kinds of changes that are going to cause those numbers to fluctuate in addition to the fluctuations we already see, then there is basically no point in running labs. If somebody comes to me and says, look, I'm running around with my hair on fire. I'm incredibly stressed out. I'm working all the time. One night I get four hours of sleep. The next night I get eight hours of sleep. The next night I get two hours of sleep. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm under this stress and that stress. I'm flying all the time. I'm changing time zones. I don't even want to get labs in that person because I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, I'm under a lot of stress and I'm a dumpster fire. I will get labs that I can rely on. Like, for example, the hair grows relatively slowly and you can assay about three to four weeks or more of someone's life through their hair. 
that's helpful. Circuit and markers are helpful as well. I'm not going to get into which ones, but I have to interpret them on that basis. This leads me to one of the big mistakes that patients make, which is they want to get their labs and then talk to a clinician about them. But this is not the right approach because the amount of money you're going to spend, and by spend, I mean waste on lab testing that you don't actually need, is going to actually be way more than the amount of money you would spend on clinician time to interpret those labs. I will still do this if people want it, but I do a very specific panel that means a lot to me that doesn't vary a ton minute to minute, week to week, month to month, and that we can derive some meaningful conclusions from if there's extreme values in certain areas, okay? Let me put a fine point on this before we jump into some of the other uh, elements of this presentation. So this study confirms previous findings that sex hormone binding globulin may be reliably measured in premenopausal women using a single occasion. What that means is sex hormone binding globulin, you can actually measure once every so often and get a reliable indication of what it is. I can tell you having looked at many sex hormone binding globulins, this is true. It doesn't fluctuate a lot. It can fluctuate a little, but it doesn't make this does not lead to clinically meaningful changes in management. Okay. It also indicates that ES1, E1S, which is an estrogen metabolite, may be reliably measured using only one sample. Our results suggest that none of the other metabolites examined meet minimal reliability requirements that would permit confidence in single measurements. Fancy way of saying you cannot derive meaningful conclusions about a person's hormones, particularly female hormones in this case, through one measurement of serum levels. I see a lot of people relying on serum levels to direct whether or not they are adding or subtracting or modulating or changing their hormone replacement regimen. A lot of this, to be perfectly blunt, is because patients don't want to take the time to do a 24-hour urinary hormone collection study. I think that's crazy. The consequences of misdosing someone with bioidentical hormone replacement are, are significant. They're significant both in the negative and in the positive. You want to use the minimum effective dose of hormones to treat a woman's hormonal-related symptoms. I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. And anyone who would say, well, you don't want to use hormones at all because of X, Y, or Z. Personally, I believe they're behind the literature. If you want the whole story on that, read Estrogen Matters. Uh, if it's a man, read something by Abraham Morgenthaler, who uh, writes about testosterone and is, I think, probably, it's probably commonly agreed that he's one of the world's experts. There's a bunch of other guys competing, I think, for that distinction. But the point is this. I don't trust the serum levels at all. Uh, I think it's, I, if women want to work with me on their bioidentical hormones, we're doing a 24 hour urinary hormone collection study, or we are not going to continue filling their hormones because I don't think it's a good idea to keep doing that. If someone is so busy and so distracted and so out of touch with, and is not taking charge of their health in a way to get a 24 hour urinary hormone collection study. Okay. So why do I think this is so important? Again, let's talk about the consequences of, uh, of bioidentical hormone use and all the different reasons why we use it. So for starters, there's an abundance of literature showing that estrogen protects women from coronary artery ri uh, disease risk. And really, it, this, is, this is can be further extrapolated towards cardiovascular events in general. So these studies all find fewer recurrent cardiovascular events and an improved survival in the estrogen group 
when compared to the non-estrogen group. Estrogen very specifically is what is protecting women from these events. Estrogen is very important for cognition in women and a woman's risk of Alzheimer's disease. When we do bioidentical hormone replacement in women, generally speaking, people are going to be replacing some combination of four hormones, progesterone, estrogen, DHEA, testosterone. Estrogen gets the most literature. Why? Because it has been reported to increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. We're going to talk more about what I think is really driving risk of breast cancer in women and what's really important for that. Uh, again, this is covered in detail in Estrogen Matters. But the reason why I want to get a 24-hour urinary hormone collection study is fundamentally that I want to get the dose of estrogen in the sweet spot. The dose or the level in the 24-hour urinary hormone study that is going to most support their health and well-being with all the benefits of estrogen without any downside of excess estrogen or excess estrogen and related to other hormones. Because estrogen and progesterone are supposed to dance together, and when you have too much of one or the other, you get side effects that you don't really want. More so with estrogen in relationship to progesterone, but you know, still, you want them to be in balance. So estrogen cognition, Alzheimer's disease, and healthy women without dementia, estrogen may enhance cognitive performance. Several small treatment trials of estrogen replacement in women with Alzheimer's disease suggest that estrogen's effects on cognition could be larger in this population and maybe more apparent in tasks of semantic memory. Translation, this may be helpful in preserving women's minds. In three recent epidemiologic studies, information on postmenopausal estrogen use was collected prospectively. While inconclusive, findings raise the possibility that postmenopausal estrogen replacement reduces a woman's risk of subsequent dementia. This is bad news for big pharma, because when a woman develops Alzheimer's disease, her medication list grows exponentially. She ends up on psychiatric meds. She often ends up on multiple other medications that treat the symptoms of menopause, uh, things like urinary incontinence, things like uh, interstitial cystitis, things like recurrent urinary tract infections. And when you give women these hormones back, they don't have all those medical problems and they don't need all those prescription drugs. This is also uh, not good, shall we say, for the memory care, nursing care, nursing home industry, which is a real industry. It is becoming an absolute juggernaut within the healthcare space. And you would be crazy to think that they have a vested interest in seeing women's minds go bad. Anyway, hormone replacement therapy, fat mass, bone mass. Okay. One of the things that women see perimenopausally or postmenopausally is that they increase in weight and they gain fat mass, they lose bone mass, they lose lean, lose lean muscle mass. Body weight increased less over the five years in women randomized to hormone replacement therapy. That's bio, that's hormone replacement as in estrogen, progesterone, some combination thereof. Then in women randomized to no HRT. A similar pattern was seen in the group receiving HRT or not by their own choice. Translation, women who are on HRT do not have the same weight gain as women who are not on HRT perimenopausally. HRT is associated with a smaller increase in fat mass after menopause. Many women come to me because they're frustrated with the way they look and the way that they feel about their bodies after menopause, and they want to go back to feeling and looking the way that they did before menopause. Is it possible for women to maintain their physical appearance to that of their premenopausal self without bioidentical hormones? Yes. You have to be extremely consistent with critical daily habits that I will cover soon. 
And you also have to be very diligent with things like weight training. Women who don't do that are pretty much doomed to these perimenopausal or postmenopausal changes in their body composition. HRT is the cheat code for women to have a better body composition for longer. Prospective 10 year study on the determinants of bone density and bone loss in normal postmenopausal women, including the effect of hormone replacement therapy. The use of hormone replacement therapy was associated with significant gains in bone density and a significant reduction in vertebral fracture risk. As somebody who's seen his mother go through a uh, postmenopausal vertebral fracture, I can tell you I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It is an absolutely miserable experience. And I won't give you any more details than that. I'll leave it to your imagination. I didn't push my mom to be on HRT. And she kind of kicked that can down the road. And I think that was a mistake. Because if we could have saved her the pain of the fracture, I think she would have been much better off. HRT is effective for treating osteoporosis with improvement in bone density and reduction in vertebral fractures. This is very real. So let's just go back and 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 this is kind of like the cliff notes version of why any woman would want to use hormone replacement therapy. And by the way, if you want the full version of this, I strongly, strongly encourage you to pick up this book, Happy Healthy Hormones by Dr. Rosensweet and read it because it's really good. And it's also very accessible and easy to read. He wrote it for women, not for practitioners. So it's going to impact your risk of heart disease. It's going in a positive direction. It's going to increase or rather protect your brain. It's going to protect your bones. It's going to protect your body composition. And it's going to, um, in many respects, protect your mood and protect you from hot flashes, which are the other things we use it in the next part of, the, of this presentation. So yes, there's a lot of good reasons for women to do this. But I want you all to understand that all, and I mean all, of those effects depend upon getting the dose right. And when people come to you and they talk about the risks of things like breast cancer with hormone replacement therapy, I want you to understand and I want you to explain to them that yes, there may have been studies that showed that, but if you go back and you look at how they were done, were they doing bioidentical hormones the way that we now do them in the integrative and natural and functional medicine health space, where we're monitoring them appropriately with the appropriate frequency of testing the appropriate testing type, and then we're using doses of the right hormones in order to get a woman's hormones right into the optimal range. Because believe me when I tell you, there is absolutely an optimal range for these hormones, a range in which we know that they will be, there will be physiologic benefits, whether you're talking about their cognition or you're talking about their bone mass or you're talking about their body composition or you're talking about their heart disease risk, known benefits, where there's not a risk of overdosing women. We're not running women at extremely high levels that may have untoward um, uh, side effects, right? And we're running them in balance. So you don't have huge elevations or high normals in estrogen and low normals in progesterone, which you don't want either. So that's why the 24-hour urinary hormone collection study is, in my opinion, still the reigning champion of hormone testing for women. It is because it is looking at the total 24-hour cycle. There are no gaps in coverage that will create noise. You absolutely should do this with a therapy that's so powerful like hormones and where small mistakes can have really big outsized effects 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. One thing I want to explain about these studies that I just shared with you all 
is that these studies, they don't take place over the whole of a woman's postmenopausal life. Let's say a woman goes through menopause at 50, right? These studies are mostly five years, 10 years, 15 years would be a long, a long study duration. So when you think about it, most women are going to live if the average age of at death here in the United States is 76 or so, women are going to live 26 years after 50. And let's call that the average age of menopause, which it may not be. That's 26 years of data, 26 years of life. I can tell you, and I've said this before in other videos I've made on this topic, that if I were a woman, I would absolutely do bioidentical hormones perimenopausally because I look at all the consequences of aging and all the inevitabilities of aging as a woman. And I think that looks miserable. Bioidentical hormones make it so much more graceful. And there's no real downside in my clinical opinion, having reviewed the literature on this and having read the opinions of lots of different experts and also seen women go through life without them and with bioidentical hormones. So without further ado, I want to talk about options though that women have and how I approach a lot of the issues that women are dealing with in menopause that have nothing to do with bioidentical hormones. So one of the big th things that I emphasize in my practice is optimizing sleep. And if you know anything about melatonin, sometimes called the hormone of sleep, you know that optimizing your sleep and opt optimizing your melatonin are effectively or practically the same thing. One of the things that surprised me in my practice is that using high dose melatonin in women, the protocol for which is over at my Substack, can actually have a significant impact on their hot flashes. No, I don't have a study on this that I've published, but I found one in the literature, which I think was the only one I could find. Compared to subjects on placebo, subjects randomized to melatonin experience significantly greater improvements in subjective sleep quality as measured by PSQI. I think that's the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, including domains on sleep quality, daytime dysfunction, and total score. Melatonin was associated with an improvement in subjective sleep quality without any significant adverse effects. Why do I think that a study like this should clue doctors in to the fact that a lot of the problems and consequences of menopause have far more to do with light than they do with drugs and hormones and the inevitability of aging? When you look at how melatonin works, it synchronizes circadian clocks throughout the body and it turns on rest and repair and regeneration programs around the body. Anything you do to optimize melatonin, from what I can tell in the literature, tends to expand or, or prolong life and improve quality of life and reduce the incidence of disease. Okay. Every disease I just mentioned in women gets easier to deal with, easier to cope with, and the risk factors or the risk drops as you optimize sleep and optimize melatonin. I'm afraid that many women today are leaning on bioidentical hormones to prevent these illnesses when the truth is they would be far better off optimizing their sleep and optimizing their melatonin, which is the master molecule that controls all of these hormones and their circadian rhythms in ways that we still are struggling to understand. This is why it didn't surprise me. Well, it did surprise me, but it didn't surprise me when I found that high dose melatonin was one of the best things I could give peri and postmenopausal women, particularly for hot flashes and sleep disturbances.
Okay. How does this work? Okay. We've known since the late 1980s that light at night increases breast cancer risk. If you look at the things that increase breast cancer risk, HRT, even in the studies where it was reported to increase a woman's risk, is insignificant compared to many, many, many other factors. In fact, and this is in Estrogen Matters, I can't remember where it is, there's this great chart where he goes over all the different risk factors that have been shown to increase breast cancer risk. And one of them is, there's a couple in there that were really memorable. Being a Finnish or Scandinavian flight attendant, why? Because you have these big, long circle routes. You're getting lots of EMF or electromagnetic radiation from space. You're having all this chrono disruption or sleep disruption. You already live in a high northern latitude where you're not getting a lot of sunlight. You're going to be getting a lot of artificial night at light because if you're a Scandinavian flight attendant, chances are you're going to be flying some overnights, right? <clears throat> Things like using heating blankets had a high, higher risk or carried a higher risk of getting breast cancer. I mean, all kinds of things dwarf in the literature, the risk of breast cancer from bioidentical hormones, which again is part of why I'm comfortable using them in my practice caveat when we're using them in the pro pro proper doses and we're monitoring it carefully so that we're not putting women at risk of any kind of overdose. Okay. Which again is why I like the 24 hour urinary hormone study, not serum levels and not these spot urine uh, tests where you're putting some urine on a piece of paper and drying it and sending it to the lab. So again, if your doctor doesn't know that light at night is a greater risk factor for breast cancer and many other types of cancer than almost anything else, you might need a new doctor. They're about 30 or 40 years behind the literature at this point. Okay. Melatonin as a principal component of red light therapy. So going back to melatonin, one of the things that I focus on when I'm trying to help people, many of whom coming to me are menopausal women, is how can we optimize melatonin? Because what you're going to find in clinical practice is that when you optimize melatonin, everything gets easier. Moods get more stable. They get more appropriate, whether you need to bring the person down or you need to bring them up. They uh, recover from acute illnesses and even chronic illnesses better, faster. Uh, a lot of their issues in specific organ systems will get much better very quickly. I'll routinely see people come in and say, oh, you know, Dr. Stillman, I did what you said. I started to get outside. I ditched my sunglasses. I stopped wearing the sunscreen. I didn't get a sunburn. Very important. Don't get a sunburn. I covered that in how I use UVB light to heal, which was a master class a few weeks ago. Um, I started to wear blue blockers at night and I started to go to sleep earlier and I started to fix all these different things that were disrupting my circadian rhythms. And that will also optimize your melatonin because optimizing melatonin and optimizing circadian rhythms, there's not really any difference there. Those are practically speaking the same things, right? I did all that stuff, Dr. Stillman, and my hot flashes went away and my sleep got better and I had more energy during the day and, 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 and a lot of problems get better. So what is one of the ways that we can boost melatonin in the body? Well, it turns out that there's this hypothesis that melatonin is the principal component of red light therapy. There are tons of papers out there on this. I just picked one. Um, this is not the whole story because there's also the reality that red and infrared light therapy change how the mitochondria functions on a quantum level and more on that later. But the point is you are influencing melatonin like this. Okay. 
This report focuses on characterizing documented functions of melatonin in the context of red light therapy and proposes that melatonin is a potential mediator of red light's therapeutic effects, a hypothesis that is as yet untested. Now, this was, you know, 17 years ago. It's been a hot minute since they published this, but the literature moves a little bit slowly and I couldn't find anyone else talking about it more recently, which is why I wasn't uh, surprised when I saw this interesting paper, which is much more recent on the use of photobiomodulation therapy for the treatment of uh, vulvovaginal issues in women after menopause. Okay. This is one of the things that I didn't get into in the literature on, on HRT. So HRT, one of the things that happens to women after menopause is that their vulvovaginal tissue will uh, deteriorate. Uh, they will go through a lot of different changes um, that are basically the aging of that those organ systems. This can lead to a lot of morbidity because women don't feel that they have the same quality of life in terms of their uh, sex life that they had before. It does not surprise me that they found or describe in this study ample evidence in the literature that photobiomodulation is going to be safe and effective in treating women who've got these issues as a result of menopause. Okay. What is this doing? It's working partly through melatonin. Do I think that boosting and optimizing melatonin throughout the body with a variety of other mechanisms is the answer to a lot of the problems that people are seeing in our modern world with aging? This is actually one of the reasons why a lot of women I've taken care of over the years have started a mild to moderate sunbathing habit and seen enormous benefits to their health, health overall. Remember, and I covered this in my video, how I use UVB light to heal, uh, the mel mel melanoma in Southern Sweden trial showed us that the more sun you get, the lower your risk of death. And that's very important because everything I talked about in those studies where HRT was mitigating the risk or improving the outcomes, all of them are also mitigated by sunlight. And I really believe sunlight's the master modulator of all these hormones. That's work that was done originally by Fritz Hallwich, whose book is somewhere over on that shelf right there. And that most doctors have not ever been exposed to because sadly the medical, um, educational, uh, complex or industry has been very much captured by some bad actors. So anyway, what are the things that I, I reach for immediately when a woman comes to me, who's got issues with her sleep issues with her hormones? Cause these are the things that really move the needle, right? So I wrote about this over on my Substack blog, the quick and simple guide to blue blockers. No one that I could find has done a study in the literature on the use of blue blockers for any kind of hormonal symptoms, but I will tell you anecdotally, the blue blockers do a great job of helping people correct their circadian rhythms and get relief from symptoms that they've been told are hormonal. Okay. If you want to look at this, uh, article, go to stillmd.substack.com and just put in uh, guide blue blockers in the search bar, you will find this along with my recommendations for uh, blue blockers. Red and infrared light therapy, perhaps better known as photobiomodulation. I use these devices almost every day. You will see the EMR tech firestorm behind me. The EMR tech inferno is out there in my living room. The EMR tech Firewave is somewhere here in my house, but I can't find it right now. I use these and will recommend these to patients for five to 20 minutes a day for a variety of different issues, which is something that I help coach them in in coaching programs, and then something that I actually help them understand as a medical intervention in my medical programs. You can apply for a consultation at stillmanmd.com. Click the apply for consultation tab at the top right. I also covered more on this issue in a Monday masterclass back in July, uh, bioidentical hormones. I went more into 
uh, the science behind this. And uh, this is my interview with Dr. David Rosensweet, my mentor, author of Happy Healthy Hormones. Uh, we, we, we broke this topic down uh, in about uh, 35 minutes, 30 minutes, and really got into exactly why we use bioidentical hormones and the benefits we see women uh, reaping from using these hormones. So check that out more if you want some more information. And last, I help people understand all of this and put these things together uh, in my coaching programs where I'm not practicing medicine. I'm just teaching you how to live a healthy life and sharing with you strategies that I've learned over the years for helping people to do that. So if you want more information on this, the link is in my link tree. It's Dr. Stillman's special offers. That will take you to this page where you can sign up for my five biggest health mistakes video, which is totally free. And then you can sign up for things like the fundamentals of wellness course plus coaching, the fundamentals of wellness course alone. Thyroid secrets is our current coaching uh, and course program. I think that enrollment for that ends tonight. And then you can check out the HTMA secrets. Uh, this is available as a course right now, and we're going to be running it with coaching uh, sometime soon. So as always, thank you all for watching. I hope this has been helpful and enlightening. Uh, if you have questions, post them in the comments and I will respond to them when I have time. If you're interested in having a private Q&A with me after these Monday master classes, you can become a premium subscriber to my Substack. You will get a notification when this video is done and you will also get a Q&A link uh, for a Zoom call with me in that same email. So as always, again, thank you for watching. Take care. Have a great day and don't forget to get outside because the sun reduces your risk of death. And if you think like me, you think that's pretty important.